Thank you, Danny. Well, if you have your Bibles, we will be back in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 today. And uh, we were off last week because uh, Gene was here and we kind of took a break and I gave you uh, a sermon on the great classes that has to be in God's school, which I think that many of you where you're at right now, that's a, uh, a great value to you and will help you a lot. But uh, we'll be back today uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And we now know that we have come through... Uh, four great lessons on understanding your biblical fellowship through the Word of God. You know, fellowship with God is so crucial, and yet it is probably one of the most misunderstood and, and uh, topics in all the Bible. And I showed you, I kind of broke it down and took the time to show you how that our fellowship with Christ should grow as we grow and develop as we develop through four basic stages. And if you're here this morning and you're saved, I can guarantee you, you're in one of these stages. Uh, you know, you're, everybody's not always, always on the same stage, or in the same stage, but you're all in one of these stages. And your goal is to continue to develop to get to that point. We talked about stage one, we'll call it. And we now know that the basic, fundamental bottom line of fellowship with God has to be with His truth. Uh, it has to be with the Word of God. We talked about in that message, if you remember, about uh, God giving you His grace and you taking that grace, but taking that grace in vain. In other words, taking what God has given to you and then never doing anything back to Him with it. So we've learned in the first lesson that the basic fundamental bottom line of, of fellowship starts with the truth of God's Word. You have to be in fellowship with that book. The second thing we talked about, or the next stage, uh, were the sufferings of Christ, the things that we go through, our adversity. Remember, I, I gave you 10 of those, things that we are, or the adversities that we are in to be in fellowship with. Not the normal things that the average Christian would think that fellowship is. We like to think of fellowship always being fun things, good things, uh, never bad things, but you saw in those 10 that that uh, the real fellowship is based on our suffering uh, with Christ through the things that we go through for Him. Then the third stage, we saw that uh, the areas of our lives, and it was nine of these, by which uh, we keep our fellowship and make sure it keeps developing. You have to keep growing. Uh, I, I've watched all my life and all my ministry, men and women who get saved, start to do well for a while, and then they fall off. And there's many reasons for that. I mean, sometimes they just, you know, they, the, the, devil, the devil never misses an opportunity to try to mess us up. He will use everything, everybody he can that is going his way to get you to quit going God's way. It's just that simple. And many times people have come to started coming to church or been in my ministry over the years. They've done well for a year, two years, three years, and then suddenly something happens to them and uh, they lose that interest. They lose that uh, luster that they had for God. And simply they quit, end of the day, they quit growing. You have to keep moving through and growing through the things in life. And uh, that's what, uh, that was in the fourth process. Uh, what being in fellowship with. The things that we are, uh, uh, we, uh, that by these things, we, uh, we really have our fellowship. And there was nine of those, to keep our fellowship and make sure that we keep developing it and keep growing. Then the fourth one, and this was the week before Gene got here, and that is the process of being in fellowship, what it ultimately produces. And I gave you some incredible contrast. 
Some incredible contrast, nine of them that ought to be in our lives once we get to a point that God is really using us. Uh, and today, we'll look at the fifth aspect of our fellowship. And I guess probably uh, if you want to lay these out in one, two, three, four, and five and put them in some order of, of importance, I would say that this fifth aspect is probably uh, the, really the key to all the rest of them. And it, I call this one the fellowship of our separation. The fellowship of our separation. And with, you know, like all the great doctrines in the Bible, uh, and the word doctrine means to teach. And when I talk about Bible doctrine, I'm talking about Bible teachings, specifically what the Bible teaches about certain areas, certain subjects that you and I need to know. But with all the great Bible doctrines in the Word of God, uh, the doctrine of, of sanctification is probably uh, is vital for us to understand. That's a big $25 word, sanctification. You hear it thrown around a lot with a lot of preachers and a lot of Christians, but in reality, it's a very basic thing to understand. And you'll remember that last week I told you that uh, that God always divides, and then he adds, but he never subtracts. You want to remember that today. Uh, We're going to use that in our little equation today. But when you got saved, God sanctified you as his child. Now, what does that mean? Well, sanctified is simply a word that means that God separated you from this world. The words sanctification and separation are one and the same. Uh, The theological term is sanctification. That's the Bible term. But in the vernacular, in the koine, it would simply be that God sets you apart. God, when you and I got saved, he divided us. I told you, God always divides us first. Then he adds things to our lives, but God never takes anything away from our life. That basic formula is why you can't lose your salvation. God divided you from the word. He added you to his church, and he saved you, but God can't ever subtract that salvation from you. Somebody says, well, you know what, but God will take the blessing from us. Oh, no, no. God doesn't take the blessings from you. No, no. The devil, on the other hand, he divides you from God. Then he subtracts the blessings of God from your life, and he never adds anything. That's how it works. No, God doesn't take anything away from you. You give it up. You throw it away. You look at God and say, I don't want it. He doesn't come back and say, well, you're not doing right, so I'm taking this from you. No, no, long before that would ever happen, you look at God and say, no, thank you, I don't want this. So that's how that works. But sanctification and sanctified simply means that you are set apart. And that's really, when you study it all through the Bible, that's what God has done uh, to have fellowship with his people. All through the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, he separated them. I mean, he separated Noah from the world in Genesis chapter 6 to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 12, when he wanted to build the nation of Israel, he separated Abraham from everybody in his family down in Ur of Chaldees and, and brought him out. Uh, when Israel became a nation, he had to separate them from the, from the land of Egypt. When they got into their own promised land, he separated them. He said, do not have anything to do with marriage or relationships with the other nations. He had separated them. They were a sanctified nation. You know, the devil knew. And, and this is something that, that I think is God's people, when we get into the everyday thing of life, why people make it, don't make it, why you struggle, why I struggle, I think this is the great unknown equation that we all forget. 
We all forget the fact that, that the, 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 I call it the devil factor. The fact that the fact that the devil always will do everything he can to keep you from being what God wants you to be. He will use every detail in your life that you allow him to use. Now you take the nation of Israel. God called them out, told them they were to be separate. Told them that they were to be a nation that was not to be connected with any other nation. The devil knew that as long as they stayed sanctified, as long as they stayed separate, that he could never really ever do anything to to bring their downfall. He couldn't because they had the blessings of God in their life and they had the power of God in their life. And as long as they obeyed God fundamentally in one simple concept, sanctification, staying separate from the rest of the nation. The devil can never get them. You know what the devil did? It's recorded for you in Numbers chapter 25 with Baal and Balaam and Balak. You know what he did? They wanted to destroy, the, Balaam wanted to destroy the nation of Israel. He wanted to wipe them out. And, uh, and Balak, uh, they, got into a, they got into a discussion of how they could destroy the nation of Israel. One of them offered him uh, umpteen millions of dollars if he would go against and destroy the nation of Israel. And he looks at him and every time and he says, I can't do that. You don't understand. You could give me all the wealth in the world, but if I go after and hurt the nation of Israel, God's going to kill me and what good's all the money going to do? But he said, but I'll tell you what you can do. If you want to bring to the demise of the nation of Israel, here's what you do. And this is found in Numbers chapter 25. It's called the heir of Balaam in the Bible. It's also called the way of Balaam in the Bible. He says this, you get their Jewish boys and their Jewish girls to intermingle and marry with all the other nations that are out there and get them to violate the, the, the principle of sanctification. And you know what? You'll destroy them. You know how you destroy them? Because when they do that and they mix their seed with another nation that God told them to stay separate from, you won't have to wipe them out. God will come down and wipe them out. And in Numbers chapter 25, you find the devil putting into play the very beginning of the downfall of the nation of Israel. Well, that downfall didn't happen for another 15, 2,000 years, but it happened. And if you want to trace it back, it all starts back in Numbers chapter 25 when God set them apart from the world and then the devil got them back with the world. And that's all it took. That's all it took. By the time we get to uh, 721 uh, a, a B.C., uh, the Shernacharib comes down and takes the northern tribes into captivity. You know what he does? He does exactly uh, the extended program of the devil. In the Bible, you have a group of people called Sumerians. And in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, the, the Jews would have nothing to do with the Sumerians. Now, the Jews were half Jew and half Gentile. And the Jew, at that point, looked at them with disdain and wanted nothing to do with them. Most people don't even know where the Sumerians came from. The Sumerians come from Samaria, which is a, a location uh, in the Bible. You can find it on a map. When, Nebuch, uh, when, uh, when Shennacherib, king of Assyria, comes down and takes the northern tribes into captivity, and he's being used of the devil to destroy the nation of Israel through intermixing and intermingling between the nations. What he did was, is he took a group of those Jews 
and he put them down there in Samaria, and they interbred. They mixed the Jewish seed with the Samarian seed. And through that came a mixture of half Jew, half Assyrian, called the Samarians, that nobody would ever accept, and his whole plan was in time to destroy the nation of Israel. But we're not done there. Nebuchadnezzar in 606, 587, he comes down and takes the two southern tribes into captivity. You can read it in Daniel chapter 1. You know what he does? He takes certain children of the king's seed. King's seed is the line of Christ. Men and women who are going to be in the lineage of Christ, and what he does is he takes them down there and tries to intermingle them with the Babylonians. That's what the devil does. That's what the devil does. Now, when the devil wanted to destroy the nation of Israel and keep them from fulfilling what God wanted him to do, he simply had them forget about the fact that they were separate from the world, sanctified from the world, and put them back with the world. You know what he does when he wants to stop you and me as God's people? Just take a guess. He gets you to forget about the fact that you are sanctified, that you're set apart. He actually gets God's people to believe that you can live one foot in the world and one foot with God. He actually, he actually, that's the biggest lie ever propagated, but that's what the devil does, and God's people fall for it. They don't know how the devil was always at every opportunity there to do everything he can to take away and subtract from you what God has given you. And, uh, you know, in the New Testament, at salvation, God has set us apart. And we now are like Israel. Israel was told to be a peculiar people. Peculiar in the sense that, I don't know if you know this or not, but in the Old Testament, a Jew distinguished himself from the world by four different things. And most people don't even know it. The first thing was a physical act of circumcision. You read in the Bible about the uncircumcised Philistines. They're always like an unsaved people. And yes, I know that the physical circumcision in the Old Testament is a picture of the spiritual circumcision of Colossians chapter 2. I understand that. But that was a physical thing on a part of their anatomy that set them apart that they were different. The second thing was that the way they cut their hair. A Jew had to cut his hair in a certain fashion. The third thing was how he cut his beard. He couldn't round the corners. His beard had to be straight down. He had to, he had to, uh, and, and if you've ever seen an Orthodox Jew from Jerusalem or maybe down deep, deep down inside of New York who still does those things, he certainly looks peculiar because that's, God wanted them to look different. And of course, the fourth thing was what he ate. No Arthur Bryant's, sorry. No smokestack, sorry. The Jew had four things that he had to do in a physical sense, kingdom of heaven, that, that separated him from the world and everybody else in it. And the devil and God took those things and he says, I want you to look different. I want you to look different to the other nations. Now, in the New Testament, for you and for me, the thing that distinguishes our, us and, and from the world is not a physical thing. God doesn't require us to cut our hair a certain way. God doesn't require us to be circumcised. God doesn't require us to eat certain things, though certain things are probably worse for you than others, and there's certainly some value in the dietary laws, I'm, uh, I guarantee you. But he doesn't require that because we're not necessarily to be different in how we look, but we are to be different in how we think and in what we do. Ours is the kingdom of God. And that's why we have four areas of fellowship that we develop. The world lives one way, we should live another. It's just that simple. 
Now, he, now, here's how it's supposed to work. When the world goes one way, we as God's people are supposed to go another way. And when that happens, it provides, yes, what we talked about last week, a contrast. The contrast in your life and my life, hands down, will be the greatest single thing if you put it in your life that will draw you to people and people to you that you can bring to Christ. The greatest single thing. First of all, the world's in a mess today. Second of all, it's families that are a mess today. Everybody, for the most part, who's unsaved is looking for something in a world that has nothing. If they can even get a glimmer of hope that you have something different in your life, they're going to want it. You know what that is? That's contrast. That's contrast. It's simply the way that it works. The world goes one way, we do another. People see the difference. They may not like it. They may, not, they may not like it. They may not agree with it. But God does it that way, and that's how he uses it. I mean, there's simple examples that everybody can relate to. In our family growing up, as my kids were growing up, and, and uh, we had relatives from Ohio come in. We, they stayed in our home, and they were unsaved, uh, uh, you know, at that point. And they would come out to our house and spend the week. When it came down to Sunday, we would simply say, we would love for you to go to church with us on Sunday. But they're unsaved. And certain elements of Barb's family, uh, you know, doesn't uh, care much about us or the Bible or anything. And we would simply say, we're, you, we're, we would love for you to go to church with us on Sunday. But if, if you don't feel like you want to, that's okay too. There's food on the table, some in the refrigerator, fix yourself some breakfast. We're going to church. And we'll be back about this particular time. We've had family people where they said that we're having a we're having a birthday for so and so, and we're having a party for so and so, and we're having it, you know, Sunday at at eleven o'clock. And we say we would love to be there. We would love to come there. We are going to come there, but we'll be there after church. You see, they may not like that. They may not agree with that. They may even think that's weird. But that's okay. I am to be weird. I'm to be peculiar. Uh, I, our kids grew up playing, playing, uh, uh, playing little league and playing. Uh, uh, they play in volleyball. Uh, the grandkids now, well, my kids grew up playing little league and all that stuff. And and we, and we would tell the coach, hey, what? We're going to support you. We'll bring drinks. We'll bring this. We'll bring that. We'll be at every game you have, except the ones on Sunday, because my family's in church on Sunday. Now the coach may not like that. He may not agree with that. He may, I even had one coach got upset and mad. But you know what? I didn't care. The bottom line is God takes that something just that little. And he takes that thing. And for the next 40 years, that guy remembers that thing about somebody rather going to church because the Bible says the word of God never returns void. You see, those kind of things makes it different for people. There's, I, I, I don't know how many times uh, something just that simple, there's been somebody on a team or somebody here, somebody there that saw that or said to the coach, where's uh, Alexander's at today? Well, they're not here. They're, they go to church on Sunday. Uh, I don't, they're not stupid. We're going to lose the ball game because not that either one of my kids were great athletes, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, they, but they, they, I mean, they, they were, ga- they, you, you were, they were game changers. They both were. But anyway. <laughs> But you see, God uses his anger and God uses, not that he was mad, but God uses his displeasure or thinking it's stupid, 
by saying it to somebody who's looking for something and then they see that and then God use it. Now, if I would have just went on and been like everybody else, we never would have missed those people, see? There has to be a contrast. There has to be a difference. And yet, I, I, I just tell you this to you parents. Uh, it's a great lesson to teach your kids. And it's, it's, it's great to teach your kids what's really important in life. I'll, I'll just tell you this, and this is not the message today, and this is another lesson, but I'll tell you this. The priority in your life today about everything as parents will become the priority in your kid's life down the line. Take it for what it's worth. But there has to be a difference. People are looking for a difference. People are looking for something different. You know how Obama got into office? He's a master at it. He got into office because everybody was sick of George Bush. And he got into office because he got up there and told everybody, and, be, and they believed him, I'm different. That's, all, that's what he did. That's all he did. He convinced a bunch of people who were sick and tired of the way it was that he was going to bring hope and change. And now Romney's up there saying, I'm different. And people are attracted to things that are different. Now, I don't care about the political side of things. It doesn't matter one way or the other. But the bottom line in Christianity, it matters a lot. You ought to be different. There ought to be a contrast in our lives as God's people and people are going to see it. That's how it works. And it's, you know, and, and yet it all sounds great. It's all true and it's all real biblical. But come on. Hey, I've been in this business too long today. And you know it too. Most of God's people... Now, here's the real issue. In most of God's people's life, there's absolutely no difference in their life between them and unsaved people. They go the same places unsaved people go. They do the same things. They never develop a contrast. And, hey, I'll be honest. There's a lot of pressure put on you when you become a contraster. There really is. It, it, it goes against the stream. It's like everybody else. It's like getting 150 people walking this way in a column and you walk in the opposite way. You've got to fight your way through the whole thing. But that's what we're supposed to do. Our separation from the world is really the key to our fellowship with God. And uh, God's people today have no biblical priorities. They have no biblical principles by which they build anything on. In the Bible, this great doctrine is called our standing in state. Your standing in the Bible, defined in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, and Galatians 5, uh, 1, is basically your standing on the promises of God. And in Christ Jesus, you're saved, you're sinlessly perfect, your soul, sealed on the day of redemption. But your state's something else. Yes, your, your state is a condition of your fellowship with God, your walk, your work, your separation from this world to Him. There's a great verse in Romans chapter 1, verse 1. And it says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. You see, it doesn't do enough just to separate yourself from something as a Christian, the world. But then once you separate yourself from the something, you've got to separate yourself to something. That's why Paul said separated unto the gospel of God. There's the contrast. That's a great verse. Now, with that little bit of introduction, and as we read this passage and look at it, you're going to see two key words popping up, and you'll want to mark them in your Bible. 
uh, for this passage really wraps itself around these two words. The first one found in verse 14, and it's the word fellowship. I think he says, for what fellowship? The second word is uh, found in verse 17, and that's where he uses the word uh, separate, be ye separate. Those are your two key words, fellowship and separate. You want to have fellowship with God? All right, be ye separate. It's just that simple. It doesn't get any harder than that. It doesn't get any easier than that. Real, true fellowship with God requires you to be separate from the world. Now, let's read our text and begin to explain it and look at the next area uh, of our fellowship here. Now, he says in uh, verse 11, this is where we're going to start. <coughs> o ye Corinthians, <coughs> our mouth is open unto you. Our heart is enlarged. You're not straightened in us, but uh, ye are straightened in your own bowels. <coughs> Uh, for now a recompense in the same, I speak as unto my children, be ye also enlarged. Uh, and be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness, and what concord hath Christ with Belial, or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel, <coughs> and what agreement hath the temple of God with idols, for ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them, and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore? Come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Now, Father, we do thank you and praise you uh, for the Lord Jesus. We love you. We ask you to take what we've got to say today and touch the hearts of these people. Lord, these people have a tremendous power to reach other people. But, Lord, they'll never do it without separating themselves from the world first. Uh, you divided us, you sanctified us, and you want to add to us the blessings and all the things that go along with it, but it's based on that separation and our understanding of it. Help us today, and we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for the sake we ask it. Amen. Now, there's many aspects to this passage I'd like to discuss with you and explore over the next uh, few weeks, and we will. Uh, so uh, I think the best way to do that is just to take each aspect of it a week at a time and kind of lay it out as best we can. Now, I'm going to break this passage down so you want to put a note by where I tell you what these things mean so you have it. Somebody asks you down the line because uh, some of this is like an old English awkward phraseology here, so you want to be able to understand it. The first thing he says there, uh, he says, O ye Corinthians, in verse 11, our mouth is open unto you and our heart is enlarged. Let me explain that. When he's saying our mouth is open unto you, he's simply saying, and everything I've told you, uh, I was completely honest in every word that came out of my mouth. That's what he's saying. He says, my mouth, uh, our mouth is open unto you. There's no lying in it. He's telling them the truth. When he speaks, he's telling them what God wants them to hear. Then he says in verse 11, our heart is enlarged. That means uh, in the fact that uh, the love that he had for them. He's saying, my love for you encompasses all of you. He, Paul loved this church. So those two aspects there, our mouth is open unto you and our heart is enlarged, is simply saying, I told you the truth and everything that every word that came out of my mouth and my love for you uh, is, is so great and so encompasses all of you. There's nobody in this church that I don't love. My heart is enlarged toward you. That's what he's saying. Uh, now, uh, now when, you, uh, when you look at the next part, verse 12, it says this. Ye are not straightened in us, but ye are straightened in your own bowels. Now, the word straighten there is an old English word, and it means tense. It means tight to tighten up. It means to be perplexed. It means to, uh, uh, to be in some kind of emotional trauma, uh, some kind of emotional stress. And you remember that bowels in the Bible, we think of bowels, we think of the lower GI tract, but bowels in the Bible uh, will always deal with our emotions. 
And the greatest example of this is, you know, you can have a really good day and be happy and the phone rings and you get some terrible bad news and you get sick to your stomach. That's your bowels. That's, the, that's your emotions. And that's how the Bible, that's what bowels are in the Bible. That's sick feeling. And he's saying, I have no problem loving you. Uh, I'm not straightened to you. I'm not tense. I'm not uptight. I'm not perplexed with you. I love you. But you have an issue with me. You see, I, he's saying, I, can, I have no problem loving you, but some of you have a problem loving me because of what I said to you was the truth. And that has caused you some emotional distress or discomfort. Straightened is the word he's using here. And uh, you got to remember, not everybody in this church really cared for Paul. <clears throat> and then he says in verse 13, and he, now for a recompense in the same, I speak as unto my children, be ye also enlarged. Now hear me, let me tell you what he's saying there. This is a great verse. The recompense of verse 13, we think of recompense, we think of something like payback, you know, going to get recompense from somebody. The recompense of verse 13 is in relationship to getting something back from them. He's saying this, he's saying you are like my own kids and you are like my own children, but it's time for you to grow up enlarged, you see, to put away your petty gripes and to give back to God recompense who has given so much to you by getting in ministry. That's what he said. I see the same thing all the time to, to you guys. I'm saying, you know what? You need to grow up, get past your little petty issues, and you need to see the big picture and start doing something for God because it's those petty little things that you focus on that keep you from ever getting where God wants you to go. And... Uh, uh, this church, we already know, is a very unstable church, very unspiritual church. He's called them two or three times in 1 Corinthians, a bunch of babies, and who are obviously not following the biblical separation of the world. Now, that wouldn't be the easiest thing to do in Corinth. If you know anything about the history of Corinth, Corinth at this time was one of the metropolitan parts on the planet. It was a, a very worldly city. And evidently, some of the people in this church, and maybe all the people in the church, are having struggles with that. So what happens here is this. <clears throat> he goes through verses now. We're going to get into 14, 15, and 16. And he lays out the things that we are not to be in fellowship with. You see, the first four areas are things that we should be in fellowship with. But this fifth one, number five in the Bible, you've got to watch it. The devil was the fifth cherub. First man dies in the Bible, dies in Genesis 5, 5. When they killed a man in the Old Testament, they stabbed him under the fifth rib. And five represent death in the Bible. So this fifth one or can represent your spiritual death from being what God wants you to be because the first four areas are things that we should be in fellowship with, but the fifth one is what we are not to be in fellowship with. And it's a great contrast. It's a great contrast. Now this passage and what follows should be memorized by every Christian everywhere, especially single young men and young ladies. Because this passage, as we read it, will deal primarily with God people marrying unsaved people. And uh, as a child of God, uh, you need to understand how this passage lays out. Now, he starts with a statement in verse 14, and this is what he says. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Then what follows here, and I use this all the time, and so will you in dealing with people. I told you Thursday night that today was going to be one of the key components of of a package that you will use in dealing with people. 
what I'm about to give you today, this week, and not next week, or Jim will preach, but then when we come back and look at the, uh, the next aspect of it, uh, the following week, this will make up a major part of, of uh, your understanding of how to work with people. I use this all the time in one form or the other. You will too. And um, if you have a, 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 a already partnered up with somebody and you're potentially going to get into the people ministry and you've already partnered up with somebody and you're well on putting your principles in your Bible and getting those down, uh, this week and next week is something that I would get with your partner and, and make sure you get this down because you're going to use it and you might as well get a head start on it if you're going to do it. Because what follows here, and as I said, I use this all the time and so will you, is one of the greatest counseling tools that you ever have. I call this the seven reasons why your marriage to an unsafe person will be a disaster. Now, I said that and had people say, well, I'm, I'm married, I, I'm a Christian, and I, I know I married an unsafe person, and, uh, and we get along just fine. We've been married for 20 years, and we get along fine. We go out to eat together, we never fight, we never do this, we never do that. Bob, I don't understand why you would make that statement, how that, that uh, uh, seven reasons why your marriage to an unsafe person will be a disaster. And my answer was because you didn't let me finish. I said the seven reasons why your marriage will be a disaster won't be here. It'll be at the judgment seat of Christ. But we forget those things. We forget those things. Now, I, 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 there's two aspects to this passage. There's a doctrinal aspect, and that's what we're going to talk about today. It's very important that you get this one down if you're going to work with people. Uh, this one deals with saved people being yoked with unsaved people. Then there's a, a, a second aspect, which is a practical side. And we're going to look at that one the next time we get into this thing. But there's two formats, two formats to this doctrinal application. The first one is keeping single people from making a disastrous mistake. And the second one is helping people you find that are after the fact that have already got into this getting a workable plan to find their way out. We're going to talk about all that as we get all farther down. This is not going to be just a, a beat-up message for somebody that, that made a mistake in life. That's not my goal, and that's not my style. Uh, I mean, uh, I think you have to understand what the problem is to fix it, but I'm all for fixing problems. Now, here's the seven biblical reasons that you as a child of God never marry an unsaved person. And if you have, this shows you basically uh, what you're up against. And uh, believe it or not, this whole study is based on seven key words in this chapter, and you want to mark them as we go along and mark them off to the side. And um, uh, like I said, if you have a potential partner in your counseling team, I'd get with them and start working through this. Now, let me say this. I hate always being so negative about things, but most of the Bible is very negative. I mean, you get outside salvation and doing what's right, everything else is negative. Uh, and, I, 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 and I'm not saying that everybody is absolutely finished at the judgment seat of Christ. But I will say this. For every thousand people who knowingly, consciously marry an unsaved person after they're saved when they know that they shouldn't. I'm, I'm talking to you in that scenario. I'm going to give you the other scenarios later. I know that there were people who were both were unsaved, and then one got saved, now you're stuck with an unsaved spouse. I understand that. I'm not talking about that. We'll, we'll deal with that a little bit later. I'm talking about a conscious Christian who is saved, goes to church, knows what the Bible says, and in spite of doing what the Word of God says, for whatever reason, I'm lonely, I need somebody, I want somebody, uh, whatever the case may be, you consciously violate that principle, find some guy, 
ChristianMingles.com is a great place to go. You go someplace, you know, get your 21 compatible things that you find uh, there at the other place. And, uh, you know, uh, ChristianMeatMarket.com is another one you can get to. And, and, and you basically, consciously, without following through the biblical principles and proving all things, because it's a Christian website, you would be surprised how many people that think that because it's called a Christian dating website, I'm not just going to pick on Christian mingles, there's a mill of them out there. You would be absolutely amazed at how many people think because it says Christian that everybody in it is a Christian. Or everybody in it is the right kind of Christian. It's like the idea that parents had years ago when we were growing up that when the Christian school era was going, that you parents actually sent their kid to Christian schools because they really believed in their head that when your kid walked through that great door into the Christian school, there was a sign up there that said, devil can't come in here. And parents thought sending your kids to Christian school was a guarantee your kids were going to be okay and grow up great. And then many parents did exactly what most parents do. They let the Christian school do what was right with their kids instead of them. The only funny thing was, and the devil never misses the trick, Christian schools are no different than unchristian schools. They're all a mess. And the devil walks the halls there just like he walks anyplace else. But again, that's another study. And if you've got your kids in a Christian school or you grew up at a Christian school, take no offense to that. I'm just a crazy old man up here just talking to myself. Amen. <clears throat> <clears throat> Now, here's the first word. And our first word is the word yoked. The Bible says it, I think, in the context, yoked together with unbelievers. Now, a yoke is an interesting instrument. I don't know if you really know what a yoke is, but a yoke was used throughout the Bible and in history to put two oxen who you wanted to plow something with or maybe pull a wagon. It was something that you put on their necks that together, side by side, in tandem, uh, they would pull together. A yoke goes over their necks, and it keeps them going in a straight line. It keeps them from one oxen going to the left, the other one going to the right. It keeps one from slowing up because the other one's got pressure to pull him on, and it keeps them together on a straight path. Now, Jesus, <clears throat> I don't know if you know this or not, but in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 and 29, Jesus used the concept of a yoke and defined it in the Bible as ministry. He said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest under your souls. In Philippians 4, 3, Paul took it a little bit farther, and he said, I entreat thee also, true yoke fellows. And he was talking to men and women that were helping him in the ministry. Now, I told you the other night about the great aspect of types in the Bible. And types teach you so much. They're incredible. Job chapter 12, verse 7, he says, Ask the beasts, and they will teach thee. And there's a lot you can learn about animals in the Bible that applies to your life and my life. Uh, you're going to find that in the Bible that oxen are likened to Christians. You're going to find that an ass is likened to an unsaved man. And you're going to find that that typology fits all the way through the Bible. Now, one of the things that you want to remember here is the yoke goes over the neck of the oxen. Now, neck in the Bible is a picture of man's will. 
And once we understand that oxen are like Christians in the Bible, that yoke, which Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11 was an easy yoke, goes over their neck. That means that before you can put the yoke of the Lord on, you got to give up your own will and your own stiff neck the way you're going, and you got to start going God's way. See how easy that is? It's easy. Oxen in the Bible are pictures of saved people. You know that most people don't know this. You know that oxen are not born oxen? You don't say, well, my cow, my ox is given birth here, and what did you have? I had three little oxen. Oxen aren't born. Oxen is an animal that is created after it has an operation that makes it an oxen. Just like Christians aren't born. You become a Christian through an operation of God made without hand, Colossians chapter 2, that makes you a Christian. An oxen doesn't become an oxen by birth. He becomes, after an operation, an oxen. Most people don't even know that. But that's, that's the typologies you come through the Bible. <clears throat> I told you, as I stated, the neck is a picture of man's will. And so you find here that they always put oxen side by side. When they're pulling a cart, or they don't, they don't put one ahead of the other. They put them side by side, and it's a double yoke, and they put it on it. And that, that picture, or that neck of that man's will is a picture of man's will in the same yoke uh, with the same other auction. And it means that when you are married and you have a spouse, the two of you are to be yoked up for the ministry. And you, are, you, uh, you, and, you and your spouse, you go yoked together. What does that mean? Uh, that means that you go the same direction in life because the yoke will not allow you to get apart from each other. You can't move separate from each other. You can't go to the left while he goes to the right. You can only go forward together. And one can't, one can't hold the other one back because the other one's in the same yoke and it pulls the other one ahead. Do you know what oxen do? Remember now, oxen are a type of Christians. Do you know what oxen do when they come to an obstacle in the road that they can't get over? It's the most amazing thing in the world. Oxen, when they come to an impasse that they can't get over, believe it or not, together, you know what they do? They kneel down. They kneel down. You know what you and your spouse yoke together in ministry ought to do when you get to an obstacle in life? Go on, just guess. I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you. They're yoked together. They go to the same direction in life. They have the same goals in life. They have the same mind in life on the things of God. They pull together, never getting ahead of each other, always staying even and pulling and working together in the ministry. Now, you can see how that would never work in a mixed marriage with an unsaved person. That's why the Bible says unequally yoked. Your kids, the problems they go through, your own spiritual issues, and all that makes a Christian family will always be on you. You'll be alone in the thing, and it'll be very hard for you. Now, I realize that there are certain stations where unsaved spouses are very amenable to things in the ministry and church and all that, but there's a lot of them that aren't. I've been in situations all my life that the thing that drove the woman down and pulled her away was the fact that her husband gave her a tough time every time she opened her Bible. I've been in situations where women have come into church, got saved, and, and met some guy that claimed to be a Christian. And when you've got found out and got married to him, uh, when they got married way too soon, they find out the guy wanted nothing to do with God, wanted nothing to do with the Bible, and ruined that person and took them away and took everything that God had from them at the judgment seat of Christ. Hey, it's the way it is. It's just the way it is. And yet at the same time, come on. 
Well, half the people I've worked with in my ministry were saved people who were saved and on their way to heaven, but for whatever reason, they would never yoke themselves to ministry. They were yoked in marriage, but when it came to ministry, they just would never yoke themselves up. And they wonder why they have tough times in life. They wonder why they struggle. They wonder why nothing goes. They wonder why they're never happy. Uh, It's a great tool that you'll use in dealing with people. And you can see, you know, you can see how that uh, you'll drift apart. And if you don't think the devil won't exploit that, then you, you don't know much about life in general. The devil, I always call him the great unknown X factor. In any situation, he'll always be the one that gets into details. Somebody will say something to somebody, it'll go to somebody else, and by the time it gets to the fourth person, it's completely blown out of proportion. You know why? Because the devil always gets into details. You'll find one person that doesn't like what somebody says or they don't want to grow, so they'll tell somebody else, well, so-and-so was mean to me and they said this and they said it this way when the person never meant it that way. And by the time he gets back, you know what? It's out of, you know why? The devil lives in the details. He always does. And the quicker you learn that, the better off you're going to be. Now, in the Old Testament, and I talk about how the Bible is so completely uh, always pulled together and everything. The Bible is so consistent. Uh, But you're going to see this all the way through the Bible. In Numbers chapter 19, verse 13, it's a violation of the law for a Jew to touch or fool around with a dead body because a dead body is a picture of an unsaved man. I'll tell you something else. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 10, it's a violation of the law to yoke up an ox, a picture of a saved man, with an ass, a picture of an unsaved man. See how it works? It follows it all through the Bible. And that's just the way it works. Now, our next key word is fellowship. And I think it says, what fellowship? Hath righteousness with unrighteousness. Righteousness will be the saved person. Unrighteousness, the unsaved person. You see, when you're married to an unsaved person, there can never be any real biblical fellowship between the two of you. We now know that real fellowship starts with the truth of God's word and then develops through the adversities of Christ, then by the great areas that lead to the contrast in our lives. That's impossible for an unsaved spouse. I mean, you may get along, you may never fight, you may never get a divorce, you may live your life very happily in this life, but that's not the fellowship that he's talking about. Listen, the single most important vital aspect of our relationship with Christ and fellowship uh, is the fact that you're not always going to uh, enjoy everything in life. The true fellowship is around the Word of God in both your lives that you can, you can be happy, uh, that you can never be happy when you're unequally yoked. God didn't save you and me for a happy life to enjoy all the things uh, to the point of denying the very reason that God has saved us in the first place. He didn't do that. Amen. The single most vital, important aspect of our relationship with Christ is our fellowship. And you better know this. The devil will make sure and take every advantage and opportunity to keep you from doing, being, and accomplishing what God wants you to do by dividing and subtracting out of your life by you not being separate. It's just the way that it works. You have been saved to serve. Happiness is based on the happenings of life. When you're happy, it's because you had a good happening. When you're unhappy, you had a bad happening. Joy is not based on happening or unhappiness. Joy is based on fellowship with God. You can be at a funeral with the death of a loved one and be unhappy but still have joy because of the fellowship you have with God. And that's the key. That's the key. Well, the third one. What communion hath light with darkness, I think it says. Light being the saved, darkness being the unsaved. 
Now, the book in the Bible in our communion, and another word for communion is intimacy. When uh, <clears throat> in the Bible we find that the aspect of, that we call communion or the Lord's Supper is probably the most sacred time that we can have with God. It's a time that both you and God enter alone into that time and that place where you get as close to God as probably human possible in this life. That's your intimacy. The book in the Bible that lays that out would be the Song of Solomon in the Old Testament. That time is so special that God takes the time to lay out the details of everything that should be in our lives to ensure that we have that time with God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it's a time of intimacy. A couple should go through that together as one, through their one-on-one relationship with Christ. That intimacy is what, what a man and a woman take to their hearts to form the intimacy between a husband and a wife in Christ in marriage, the attitude of heart toward each other. In marriage, it's the basis for your communication. It's the basis for your relationship. It's the basis for your fellowship. It's the basis of your lordship. It's the basis on your attitude of heart toward God and each other. And it's certainly the basis for your trust. And when you don't have those five, six things in your marriage, you ain't got anything. And those things are dependent on your relationship with God and are dependent on what communion. The ability to work through and talk through every situation you face. The husband. Being able to understand his wife. Reading her. Knowing why she struggles with something. Knowing when she doesn't want to talk about something. Knowing the way to get her to talk about it. By coming after her in the right way to get her to dialogue with you. To get it out where you can minister to her. Without putting her in a little box someplace. Where you, she's got to be this three by five container. This is the way she's got to be. The wife understanding her husband. Realizing his fears and his struggles. And the things that he goes through. And her ability to reach out to him and to have that time where uh, when he doesn't want to talk about it, you're smart enough to know to leave him alone or you're also smart enough to know when you need to draw it out of him. Not just taking from each other. That's not a biblical marriage, but giving to each other first. And that all comes down to the intimacy of communion together. And that can't happen with an unsaved person. It just does not work. It's impossible. Cannot take, a mixed marriage can never accomplish that. Never experience that. Never ever get to that level. Unfortunately, most of God's people that are saved don't ever get to it either. Because as I said when we started, there's no difference between them and the unsaved world other than the fact that they're going to heaven. By the end of the day, there's no difference between the two in most cases. The key component will always be missing. And the key component is the fact that God, as we talked about a couple of Thursday nights ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, when that young man asked the question, God may recognize your marriage to an unsaved person because of your children's sake, but they will never, God will never see it as one together in God's sight as Ephesians chapter 5. That will never happen. And that's a problem. The fourth one, what concord? Now, concord is an interesting word. It akin to our word concourse. A concourse is a bridge, something that spans two structures. In the Bible, the word literally means togetherness. What concord? Togetherness. A husband and his wife have to be together on almost everything that is a major issue. Now, I I say things like this, and yet, you know, on the practical side, 
there's lots of things you don't agree on. You, you, you know, you, 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 your wife goes to buy a new pair of shoes and she says, do you like these? No matter what your opinion is, you need to say yes. Say, <laughs> I always take the out out and simply say, well, you're the one that's going to wear them. If you like them, that's all that really matters. And that is basically true, but I'm such a pragmatic individual anyhow. But, you know, you can disagree on the color of a car. You're going to buy a new car. She says, well, I want red. You want blue. You can disagree on that. You don't have to be in agreement on that. So she said, well, we need to paint the house. And you say, well, I got you two paintbrushes yesterday. Hit on it, lady. Uh, you know, and all that. But you don't have to necessarily agree on the color. Those kind of things never bother me. If we're buying a new car and I, want, I, I like the black and Barb likes the white, get the white. I don't care. Just a car. I don't care. Somebody says, well, we're going to, that neighbor lady said the other couple of years ago, we painted our house. It's been a while now. She said, well, I really like the color you painted your house. And I said, you know, and I could have said, yeah, you know, I, 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 I'm a decor guy. I like those things. I just said, you know what? My wife picked the color. It doesn't matter to me. You want to paint it red. I don't care. You want to put polka dots all over it so they can see it from the sky. I don't bother me. I don't care. I don't get into those things. That, I don't care. Those things aren't my issues in life. Somebody says, well, we're going to get carpet. Well, I've seen husbands just get beside themselves because it had to be this color. I don't care what color you put it down. Let me give you some advice, though. When I wear my muddy boots in, get something that's dark so it won't show. That's all I'm going to tell you. But get whatever you want. I don't care. But there are some things in life that the husband and wife have to be together on. One of them is training your kids. You have to be together on that. You know why? Because kids will exploit the difference between the two. They will exploit the weak side, always will. And that's a fatal flaw that most parents make. They're not together. They don't have a, they don't have a plan to, to, to train their children. I'll, I'll tell you something else they need to be uh, in concord or together on, how you discipline your children. You have two different parents that have two different ideas about disciplining a child one of them biblical, the other one not biblical, or maybe neither one of them biblical, you're going to have some problems. I'll, I'll tell you something else. You need to be together on the goals of your family, what you're going to try to accomplish. What, do you, what goals do you have for your children? Do they know what those goals are? I, I, I'll tell you, you need, to have, you need to have together on the structure for your family. You need to have a structure within your family that everybody, they tell you, you know, that you need to have a plan with your family that if a tor- tor- tornado comes or some disaster happens or there's a fire in the house, that everybody goes to a, a meeting point. That no matter where you're at, instead of me looking for everybody, if everybody will just remember, go to a certain point, and that's where we'll all meet, and that's where we'll all get together. Now, that's a good plan. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But you've got to have a bigger plan than that with your kids. Uh, they need to know where, where, where heaven is and where hell is. They need to know, understand the concepts. And like I said earlier, whatever priorities you have in life are going to become their priorities. And you and your wife need to be together on it. You need to be together on what ministries you get into. I'm not saying you've got to minister the same thing in the same way. You need to be together where you go to church. You remember, the devil will always get into the details of anything. And the thing that keeps the devil from getting out of anything into any details between you and God is your togetherness. And the thing that keeps the devil from getting into your family is your togetherness. It's the old cliche, and it's goofy, but it's true. The family that prays together stays together. Now, that's not necessarily true because most people don't do it right anyhow. But the concept is true. Togetherness keeps the devil out. 
And that's just where you got to have. Togetherness comes from your Bible. Looking at the things in life from God's standpoint based on biblical principles. Developing the same mind, the Word of God, being equally yoked. I showed you last week where God divides you from this world and and then adds the blessings with God uh, to you. The devil, as I said also last week, will divide you from each other, your concordness, your togetherness. He'll divide you from each other and then subtract the blessings of God from you. The only thing that will keep you is your commitment to God and His Word and living His principles together. They have to be together toward each other. I grew up in a I grew up in a Christian world uh, where uh, back in the oh late sixties and the seventies and the early eighties the big deal was family devotions and elder preachers were were banging the pulpits about having family devotions with your family. Sometimes they called it the family altar, and uh, the idea was that uh, uh, that. You know, you, you get your family together every night and you, you sit down and you read the Bible or you sit around a table and read the Bible. And uh, that, was, uh, that was their big fix for everything. Well, human nature is such that you know as well as I do that you can sit down around the table with your family and have devotions and it means absolutely nothing because it becomes a ritual. It is because something that you do. It's like going to church. What is the purpose for you to continue to go to church week after week after week after week but you never do anything. I mean, I mean, I'm not saying, I'm just saying, what is the, you got to look at it like that. What is the purpose? Why do you come? You come the way, because I get so much stuff, but you're supposed to do something with what you get. See? And sitting around the family and having a little Johnny here and a little Tommy here and a little Mary over here and a little Sue over here and, and sitting out and mama over here and you over here and owning up the Bible. Uh, one time, one time somebody asked Mel Sabaka, my father and the Lord, they asked him, it was in the height of this, they said, do you have family devotions? His answer was classic. They said, well, you got a great family. Do you have family devotions at your house? Surely you must. And Mel said, yeah, we sure do, just not the same kind that you guys have. And the guy said, well, what do you mean by that? He said, well, you guys sit down and read around the Bible and don't do nothing with it. We found out that family devotions isn't just sitting down and opening up a Bible and reading something and everybody around. In our house, we live the principles of family devotions toward each other. Now, there's family devotions. It isn't about sitting down and opening a book. It's about what you do with it after you close the book. You go back beating up on your wife and they're telling her she's this and that, or you go ragging on him, or you fight with the kids. What's the point? What's the point? That's togetherness. Togetherness. And uh, he says, what concord has Christ with Belial? And that's a great one. And that's the next one, number five, Christ and Belial. And he says there, what concord together hath Christ with Belial? And I guess this is probably, I guess this is probably uh, the key to all the rest, I would think. It's an incredible concept to grasp. Let me ask you a question. Can God and the devil ever get together on anything? No. Um, thank you for that. I'm, I was waiting there for an answer. No, no, they can't. No, they can't. Uh, you, you know, God and the devil can never get in anything, any subject, anything, they can never get together. One represents light, one represents darkness. One represents sin, one represents holiness. Genesis chapter 1 verse 4 says, God divided the light from the darkness. And that whole Bible was built on that concept from that point on. The Bible says in John chapter 1 verse 5, light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 1 verse 5, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. It's impossible 
for God and the devil to ever get along and get together on anything. And if you're saved, man, I mean, the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 4 and 5, that you're children of the light, children of the day. And if you're not saved, the Bible says you're children of darkness, you're children of the night. And this is the fundamental difference and the basic problems you have in marriages with unsaved people, light versus darkness. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. John chapter 8, verse 44 says to an unsaved man, Ye of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you shall do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there's no truth in him. He's a liar, and he's a father of them. See the problems? Two different families. Now, I preached that message one time, <coughs> a while, wait, years ago, <coughs> and I preached on the fact that if you're unsaved, your spiritual family is the devil. If you're saved, your spiritual family is God. <coughs> and uh, you'd be surprised how many people got upset with me because I said that. I mean, it was right there in the Bible. And a lady, I'll never forget, a lady come up to me, and she was obviously unsaved, and I think her husband was probably saved, <coughs> but she come up, and she stuck her finger in my face, <coughs> and she said, I'd never been so offended all my life. How, how dare you tell me that as an unsaved, and I, she says, I, I came to church to hear you. I don't really go to church, but to come this morning and to hear you tell me that my spiritual family is the devil, and I'm of the devil, she says, I just never heard anything so condescending in all my life, and I want you to know I'm totally offended. I look back at her and I say, you know what, ma'am, when I heard that thing about 15 years ago, I was offended too. In fact, I was so offended, I did something that revolutionized my whole life. And I suggest to you, I didn't like being the devil's family either. So you know what I did, sweetheart? I changed families. Why don't you change families? She didn't. I did. <clears throat> That's just the way it goes, folks. Now, let's stop for here a minute. Because this is one that you're going to deal with all the time, and I, I want you to begin to understand this, and I want to explain myself. Rule number one, and this is basically what we're talking about today. If you're single, if you're in fellowship with God, stay that way. Follow the biblical principles in finding the right spouse. It may take longer than you want it to, but it's nowhere near as long as a marriage will seem married to the wrong one. Genesis chapter 24 is a passage that I've taught you many, many times. 19 principles on how to find a spouse. Two times in that passage, he tells him, don't get him an unsaved woman. Now, here's the issue that you're going to face. Many times, two people will both be unsaved when they come to church. And one will get saved. And the other one is still unsaved. Now you have a scenario that you have that uh, uh, you better know how to deal with. Because in this, this case, the, the person did nothing wrong. Now, if you're a saved person and you consciously marry an unsaved person, that's on you. But if you're just two unsaved people who go to church and you get saved, sweetheart, or the man gets saved, and the wife stays unsaved at that point in time, you didn't do anything wrong. But as you got into that, you were unsaved anyhow. So that's a whole different scenario. That's not what I'm preaching about this morning. Now, I'll be honest with you, that can cause some issues. But it doesn't have to cause any issues if you recognize what God is doing. Do you actually think that God's reached his hand down in your life and saved you and doesn't want to save your spouse? Do you really believe that? But that's how a lot of people look at it. 
But what you've got to look at is that there's two of you, and you're both lost. God reached down and saved you. And then maybe God reached down and saved your, your child, or God saved your, somebody else in your family. Your husband or your wife, whatever the case may be, is only down the line as a process that they will get saved to. Because that's what God wants. That's what God saved you for. He just started with you. He doesn't want to start and end with you. He wants to start and he wants to develop through you and in time reach everybody. But it's up to you. It depends on you realizing that you're the key in that situation. It's a, re- it's a situation where you have to realize now what you're up against. There's a certain way you got to do this. And this happens all the time. Now, the saved person needs to see the need to get that spouse saved. And I'm telling you, with, when you get biblical principles and you understand your scenario and you get a plan, I cannot tell you how important it is for whatever you're trying to pursue in life or do in life as a Christian, probably everything in life, you need to have a plan. A biblical plan based on biblical principles that's going to get you from point A to point B. When we get into the counseling scenario after the first of the year, I'll walk you through these and show you exactly how you handle it. But I'm telling you now, that person didn't do anything wrong. That person was unsaved when they came to church. One of them got saved, the other one's lost. All that means to me is now we have a tremendous opportunity that that whole family can get saved. You are just the crack in the door that God is going to get his light to shine through. And then we work it from there. We sit down and we put a plan. We orchestrate circumstances. We put things together. I remember one time, one of my greatest friends uh, in the ministry uh, at this point was a good friend of mine, was Greg McClintock. And uh, I preached a revival many, many years ago in Monmouth, Illinois. And Greg uh, was a prosecuting attorney, but he was unsaved. Great guy. Moral great guy. But he was lost. His wife, Irene, was, 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 was saved. And they went to the revival that night, and we struck up a friendship, and, and, uh, and immediately uh, we had talked about Greg getting saved. And uh, my whole goal, and I went up there, they had me back up for other times, and my whole goal was to, was to win Greg McClintock to Christ. And every time, I remember the first time, we had a, they had some kind of carnival or something, and we took a bunch of people up, and we sat up there, and we passed out deals, and, and Greg came over, and, and we talked for a while, and we got along very well, and, and I told him, I said, I said, do you know what? I said, uh, uh, he was going home, and I said, you know what? I said, I'm going to get out of here. I said, how about we pick up a pizza, and we'll go rent a war movie, and we'll go sit down and watch it in the house. He said, sure, come on. We got a pizza, got a war movie, and sit out. Now, I preached that Sunday in the church. That Sunday, he showed up. All because I got him some pizza in a war movie. We sat down and we talked. We had a good time. I brought up nothing about God, nothing about the Bible. We just, that Sunday he showed up. I said a lot about the Bible on Sunday. <laughs> I came back for a revival. He came every night. And about four months later, that guy got saved. And now he's as smart as any pastor I know. He teaches Bible studies. He preaches in the church up there. And he turned his, it, it all turned around. All because there was a plan put in effect that had an end result, and it works. But you got to know what you're doing. This is not a place where you want to put on an Acme transmission suit and stand in front of the car with a garden hose saying, I always wanted to fix the transmission. That's not what you want to do here. 
Now the saved person needs to understand that they're, they're going to get their spouse saved. We put a plan together. Remember the fact that God reached down in that family and saved one. He wants to save the rest. This is what we do. This is what the plans we put together. This is what we help you accomplish. You're just the beginning. It isn't, well, I got saved and now the rest of my family's lost. No, no, no. That's not how you look at it. You got saved as the first installment of getting your family saved. And we work along those lines. Number six, what part? <clears throat> what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? Now, that in the ministry is what God saved you for. The part. What part you play in God's plan. God saved you to serve him in ministry. And if you're not, then there's something wrong with your salvation experience. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I gave you a great verse for couples in ministry in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse, 20, uh, verse uh, 24. For who shall hearken unto you in this matter? But as he that part is goeth down to the battle, so shall his part be that tarrieth by the stuff. They shall part alike. Now, going back to our first word we studied was yoke. Ministry has always been in the New Testament done by twos. Matthew chapter 10, he sent the disciples out two by two. On the missionary trips in Acts, it was Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas, Barnabas and John Mark. They went out by twos. I already showed you that the Christians being yoked together with believers is a picture of what we are to do in ministry. A husband and a wife should do ministry as a team. It doesn't always mean they do the same thing together. But it does mean that when you split up and do ministry, you get twice as much done and cover twice as much ground. You're a team, though, that works as one. Yet at the judgment seat of Christ, the Bible says you get a double reward. Your wife works with people, you work with people. Your wife teaches classes and disciples, you teach classes and disciples. She wins somebody to Christ, you win somebody to Christ. But at the end of the judgment seat of Christ, you get all that is in it for both of you. You get what she did, she gets what you did, you get a double reward, you part alike. Sometimes she stays home with the sick kids while you go to church. <clears throat> Sometimes you stay home with the sick kids while she goes and disciple. Sometimes you work in the nursery so she can come to Bible study. Sometimes you do this so she can get this done. You watch the kids while she disciples. She watches the kids while you disciple. Both go to restart together. She works on the, in the building. You work down on the street someplace. But you go, go to church together. She works over here. <clears throat> you do this. She is your partner. Oh, that's where that word came from. Partner. What partner? Partner. That's what, that's, that's my, my. That's where it all comes from. She's your partner. You part alike because you're partners. A mixed marriage can't do that biblically. Oh, I mean, the guy can stay home and watch the kids while you go to do whatever you're going to do. Or the gal can stay home while you go to do whatever you're going to do. But that doesn't mean that the gentleman seat of Christ, you're going to part alike. Now, the last one. Number seven. What agreement <clears throat> hath a temple of God with idols? If you don't have it already, I'm going to give you one of the greatest verses in the Bible that we're going to probably start with this when we get to the practical side next time. But it's in Amos 3.3. It's a great principle. Absolutely incredible. And it's so true. How can two walk together except they be agreed? That's an incredible principle. You can't. You can't. And you can't with people, and you certainly can't with God. In ministry, as in marriage, there has to be an agreement. Most people don't understand the connection between marriage and ministry. 
Now, in a lot of ways, you single people are ministering, and you do a great job. But you know as well as I do that in the process of that ministry, if you stay with it long enough, if you're single, you're going to probably find your spouse through the aspect of ministry. That's a good thing. You don't have to go looking out here, out there. God will put them in ministry. You get a chance to watch them. You get a chance to observe them. You get a chance to see if that's the real deal. And then you can make your move. <laughs> see, and that's what you do. That's how it works. And, uh, you know, you, you, you have the opportunity to be able, to, uh, to, be able to, to work that. Because people don't understand that ministry and marriage go hand in hand. Well, you get married for one reason. God had a plan for Adam. It was to be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. We talked about it Thursday night. But God had a plan for Adam. But he couldn't do that plan by himself completely. So God gave him a help meet. Not a mate, a help meet. And that was the woman. And she helped meet, not mate. He didn't give her to him just so they could mate. He gave her to her so she could help him meet the demands that God had for him to do. You can't separate the two. And marriages that try to separate the two will always have problems. You say, oh, we get along fine. I was just getting ready to say, at the judgment seat of Christ. You see, ministry is an agreement between me and God. And marriage is an agreement between me and my wife. And God ordained both. And if you're not in agreement on the first one, you'll never be in agreement on the second one because they're connected. Those two were designed by God to go hand in hand. Probably the single greatest lie, as I said earlier, the devil ever propagated on man was a lie that you could walk with God and not be in agreement with him. You can't. Not in agreement on why he saved you anyhow. You see, marriage is God's design for ministry. That's how it works. She helped him meet the needs of the ministry that God had given him. And uh, uh, it, it took both. One could not do it alone, so they're, in the New Testament, they're yoked together for ministry. All right, now, in closing, look at verse 17 and 18. I want to move through this here and give you this. We just kind of laid out the format over the next couple of weeks. We will be going back through these things and slicing and dicing and giving you all the inside stuff on this. What follows here is Paul taking uh, and quoting an Old Testament passage in uh, Isaiah 52, 11, and he makes a New Testament spiritual application. He does this a lot. He says in verse 7 and 18, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Now, English class, last week. Wherefore, conjunction, disconjunction. Wherefore. Wherefore always means because of what I just said, I'm going to tell you something else that goes along with what I just said. Very important in the Bible. You always want to watch the wherefores or therefore. Uh, wherefore, because of what I just said, he said about why I won't work. It won't work to be unequally yoked with unbelievers and stay away from it and don't get involved with unsaved people. And then he says, wherefore, come out from among them, the world. And be ye separate. There's our second word. Separation. Sanctification. Sanctified. And uh, come out of the world. Now, there's a great example of this in the Bible. And it's found in the life of Abraham. So many things are in the life of Abraham. But here's a classic example. And there's lots of them in the Bible, but he's the one that we most can relate to. 
God has something he wanted Abraham to do. So he calls Abraham and his wife out of Ur of Chaldees. That's modern-day Baghdad, Babylon. He calls them out of Ur of the Chaldees. And he's taking him to the promised land, which is going to become the nation of Israel, because from Abraham is going to come Isaac. From Isaac is going to come Jacob. From Jacob down the line is going to come 12 boys who become the 12 tribes, and off we go. So he calls him out. He has to get him here again. Before he could multiply the blessings in his life, he had to divide him. So he divided him from the Ur of Chaldees, and he says, Get ye out from your kindred, everybody. And go to a place that I've told you to go, and there I'm going to give you everything, and we're going to get some things done. Now, Abraham was just like you and me. And Abraham was a guy who, uh, uh, you know, he had the same like passions we have and the struggles in life. And starting out, he didn't always do the same thing right, just like we did. In fact, he didn't do everything right all of his life, just like we did. But here's a fundamental flaw that he made, and we learn from this. So we ought not to make the same mistake, even if we're as weak as he is. We have an example that should correct our our mistake. He didn't obey God totally, did he? He took Lot with him. And Lot's a picture of the world. In other words, Abraham loved God, wound up being one of two men in the Bible called a friend of God, did everything in his life as a perfect picture of what our life should be right up to the point where he offered his own son. He's a great example of everything we should be, but fundamentally he had one flaw in his life, and that flaw was when he left he didn't completely separate himself from his kindred. That one choice, that one little choice. And I guess if we were around at that point and you saw him all packing up the camels and you heard what God said to him and he, he said, Abraham, are you, are you all ready to go? Yeah, uh, well, uh, are you taking, what, what are you doing? Who's this? This is my nephew Lot. I'm taking him with me. Oh, wh- why is that? I thought God said, well, you know what? He's a good kid, and, and uh, he, there's not much back here for him, and I just felt like the experience would be good for him, and I can really influence from God. Now, doesn't that sound like a good excuse to take him? How many times I've heard somebody tell me the exact same thing about messing with somebody that's unsaved and of the world in their life? And you know what? It didn't work for Abraham, and it won't work for you. God means what he says, and he says what he means. When he says, separate yourself, In the Greek, that word means separate yourself. (laughs) For the next 2,500 years, Israel's problems go back to his bad choice in bringing Lot out. The end result of Lot is Ammon and Moab, who become two of the nations that he fosters children through his own daughters, who plague Israel all down through their time period. All goes back to one thing. God tells you to do something. We do half of what God says and add what we want. And there's the problem. Fellowship. Your children ought to be in such that when they do something wrong, they're not afraid of getting a whipping, though they are afraid of getting a whipping. They're not just afraid, and that what bothers them is not that they, they did something wrong. What ought to bother your child more than anything else, that when they do something wrong, if you have the right relationship with them, is what ought to bother them more than any single other thing that why they did what they did is because what they did broke fellowship with you. 
that ought to be the thing that brings them to a point where they can't hardly stand it. I did, and I broke fellowship with my dad or my mom over what I did. Oh, I know God's involved in all those things. I understand all that. Don't go spiritual pious on me. I'm talking about in your, hus- in your husband and wife relationship with your children. It, number one thing ought to be, is Dad, that bothers me more than anything else, is I broke fellowship with my father. I broke fellowship with my mother. What I did broke that bond that I had with them. And that, when that gets, they, they don't care how hard you whip them. You can throw them off the roof and it won't be enough. You can drag them around the parking lot with chains on their ankles and they'll say, let's go another couple of laps. Breaking that fellowship has to be the key. And you know what? The difference between you and most Christians in your life is that when it comes down to you and God, that will be the number one thing that smites you when we do wrong. Not that I did it. Not that I got caught. Not that I wish I'm going to confess it, but I'm going to do it again. It's the fact that you are smitten in your heart because... What you did broke fellowship with your father. Nothing better in this world, folks, because fellowship is the key to everything. And now you're seeing it goes through four developing stages, and now you've seen the thing that you better keep away from. Next time we get together, we'll go back through this. I'll bring you back. I'm going to show you the practical side to it. And you'll leave this chapter understanding. Maybe you won't do it, but you will understand what it means and what it takes to have a biblical fellowship with God. Let's pray.